Well, go ahead and grab a seat and uh, let me add my welcome this morning. My name's Alistair. I am the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. I want to welcome the dead middle of summer long weekend remnant. Well done. It's good to see everybody. Uh, let's start with a joke. Why not? Uh, a person asks a lawyer, what's your fee? The lawyer says, I charge $300 for three questions. That's awfully steep, isn't it? The guy asks. Yes, the lawyer replies. Now, what's your final question? In our passage, a lawyer stands up, thus telling lawyer jokes. But don't think of Harvey Specter or Mike Ross from Suits. Uh, this isn't a three-piece suit, hair-perfectly-parted legal expert in public law. This is an expert in Jewish law. This is a religious lawyer. Uh, he's a lawyer of the Torah and the commandments and laws of God in the Jewish scriptures. And so he's well-versed in the many thoughts and interpretations that have accumulated over the centuries about the laws and commandments of God. And typically, people come to him with their questions about God and God's law. But on this occasion, the lawyer is the one asking the question. And he's not asking, who is Jesus? Which is this fundamental question all along Luke's gospel. Instead, the lawyer is asking this, Jesus, are you credible? Jesus, are you credible? And the lawyer has two questions to test Jesus's credibility. Uh, one is about eternal love, uh, life, and the other is about loving your neighbors. And they both come out of a deep and very human desire to justify himself, to justify his existence, to justify that his life is on the right track. So eternal life, loving our neighbors, and justifying ourselves. This is what we're going to look at in our passage. But let's also join the lawyer in asking this question, Jesus, are you credible? Jesus, are you credible? So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. Uh, he asks his first question in verse uh, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, right away, Luke says, this lawyer's intentions are not neutral. You know, this isn't someone coming to Jesus uh, claiming to be innocent. He has a motive. He wants to test Jesus. More accurately, he wants to challenge Jesus. And so he's not coming to Jesus for dialogue or learning. He's coming to evaluate Jesus. He wants to see if Jesus really is faithful to the law. He wants to see if Jesus can pass the bar. He wants to see if this new rabbi can actually live up to all these murmurings that he might actually be the Messiah of God. Is he credible? So the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I can't help but wonder, are many of us asking this question anymore? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Broadly speaking, less and less people are asking this question. Uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says that in our secular age, we live in what he calls an imminent frame. This is his way of saying that 
Uh, we live as if the natural, observable, experiential world is all that there is, the here and now. And so what must I do to inherit eternal life? It sounds archaic and ancient to some of us, like a way of avoiding the fact of death. And it can seem even like an unhelpful question that takes people off the hook for making this world a better place while we're actually alive. But even within Christian theology, over the past few decades, there's been a renewed and right emphasis on how the kingdom Jesus proclaims shapes our life here and now. But accidentally, we can actually become nearsighted. We rightly seek out to live the ways of Jesus here and now for the benefit of this world, but then we stop looking beyond the horizon to our hope that our life is set on a trajectory of eternity. Or we don't understand how this hope of eternal life shapes how we live here and now for the life ever after. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe this question seems like a way to placate the fear of death, or perhaps you're so overfamiliar with the promise that it doesn't stir you with the allure it once did, or perhaps you don't see what difference eternal life makes for the here and now. Uh, wherever you may be in respect to this question, I just want to suggest it's a good question to ask again, or for the first time. Because Ecclesiastes, which is a book of Hebraic wisdom, bordering on nihilism, uh, it says this, God has set eternity in the human heart. God has set eternity in the human heart. So even someone in the throes of nihilism could see that there's this buried desire in us. And so this question from the lawyer, it taps into something deep in our souls, deep in our humanity, a longing for what is good and beautiful and just and true to last a longing for the possibility that this life, this life is only the beginning, only the introduction to the first chapter of the life that is to come. A lawyer stands up. He wants to test Jesus' credibility, and he does so with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So in his response, the lawyer brings to together what was popularly understood as the two commands in the scriptures that summarize the whole law. And in the Gospels, you might recognize this. Jesus quotes these two commands as summarizing all the law and the prophets. The lawyer offers the right answer. And Jesus says so much in verse 28. He says, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So this is what someone must do to inherit eternal life. This is the track to... Uh, to eternity. This is what we must do to attain that desire that is pressed upon our souls, eternity buried in our hearts. But you'll notice Jesus only affirmed what the lawyer already knew. He didn't offer any fresh take. And so the lawyer has a follow-up question, his second question. Look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
Jesus and the lawyer, they agree that loving God and loving neighbor are the requisites for inheriting eternal life. That is what you must do. But I think it's interesting that the lawyer doesn't ask for clarification about how to love God at all, let alone with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. He doesn't need a clarifying question about how do you possibly do that. Instead, he asks, who's my neighbor? Now, to his defense in the Hebraic world, in the Hebraic imagination, you show your love of God through your love of neighbor. But if we look at why he asks this question, we can see why he's more interested in how he loves his neighbors because Luke tells us outright he wanted to justify himself. So the motivation of the lawyer has shifted from challenging Jesus to trying to justify himself. Because in his heart of hearts, he wants to justify his own existence. He wants to be seen as righteous, as upright and moral, a rightly religious person. Because let's not forget, this is a public conversation. Who is my neighbor? Has an underlying hope that whatever Jesus says next, the lawyer can turn and say, yes, teacher, I have done it. I've loved who I'm required to love. I've kept The law, I will inherit eternal life as a right. And people will nod and smile and agree that he is a very right and holy person. And they'll hoist him up on their shoulders and carry him off into the sunset. It's in the text, I promise. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We could put it this way. Who must I love? And in asking this question... Maybe he's expecting Jesus to reply with some scriptures again, because that's what just happened. Maybe he expects Jesus to quote from the Torah and say, love the son of your own house or care for the stranger who sojourns among you. And since the lawyer is trying to justify himself, I think it's fair to assume he's already doing this. He's loving his family. He's loving the people of God. He's trying his best to care even for the stranger in their midst. He takes on pro bono cases even. So the, (laughs) you really like that one, huh, (laughs) Paul? So the question is set up so that whatever Jesus says will make him appear righteous to others and prove that he is right before God as well. Who is it that I must love? Now, I have to admit, I would really love it if Jesus just turned to us and gave us a list like this. Love your parents, love your siblings, love some of your extended family and love your neighbors, but only within three houses of you or the apartments on your floor. Love your nicest coworkers and your favorite barista if possible. Like if Jesus gave us a list, like there's your neighbor, I could handle some of that. But Jesus doesn't give us a list. And he's not about to give an answer the lawyer can use to justify himself. Not at all. Instead, Jesus tells a well-known story, a well-known parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So turn with me to verses 30 through 32 in chapter 10 of Luke. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
So Jesus asks the question, what do you do when you come across a naked, beaten, half-dead man? Well, what would a priest do? In the parable, we're told that the priest is going down the road. So we need to pay attention to that direction. Because many priests in that day lived in Jericho. So they would go up to Jerusalem for their duties. And so when Jesus says he came down from Jerusalem to Jericho, the priest is returning home. He's finished his work. He's off duty. But for whatever reason, whether it's blatantly, blatantly ignoring the laws of God, or if it's compartmentalizing his faith, you know, I'm, I'm done my work in Jerusalem, I'm off duty, I'm, I'm off the hook right now. Or even if it's um, interpreting the law to excuse himself, who's my neighbor? Not this guy, I don't know him. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the priest does nothing, nothing. Jesus says he passed by on the other side. That's the only action he took to distance himself. And then comes a Levite. And Levites, just to remind you, were the tribe in Israel set apart to serve the priesthood in the temple. So it's another holy man, a significant religious person. And it's no different. Jesus says the Levite too passed by on the other side. So a priest and a Levite, pillars in the community, they don't stop to help. They both distance themselves from the moral responsibility because they don't see this uh, naked, beaten, half-dead man as a neighbor to love. Now, this is, well, depending on your take, not the behavior you would expect from a religious leader, um, but sometimes they fall short. So maybe, I don't know who's going to come next, a good and faithful lawyer. But the scene of the parable explodes in the face of the listeners. Look at verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, the lawyer and everyone listening in would be thinking, like, no, like what? Wait, no. A Samaritan? You might recall that just one chapter ago, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, what did they say? Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven upon the Samaritan village? Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There were ethnic reasons, there were religious reasons, but they just hated each other. So the fact that a Samaritan, Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero of this story, it's an offense. The Jewish, Jewish audience listening to Jesus, they would be dismayed. Samaritans were not examples to emulate. They were neighbors, nay, enemies to hate. But the Samaritan of this parable is a true model of what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor. He goes above and beyond. He opens everything he has, bandages and oil and wine, his animal, his time, his energy, his money. He uses everything he has to save the life of this vulnerable victim. And even more, a Samaritan would not be safe traveling into a Jewish town carrying a wounded Jew over the back of his animal. Uh, the New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey puts it this way. 
putting the story into an American context around 1850, which is always fun to do with any story. Suppose a Native American found a cowboy with two arrows in his back, placed the cowboy on his horse, and rode into Dodge City. After checking into a room and over the saloon, the, the man spent the night taking care of the cowboy. How would the people of Dodge City react to the Native American the following morning when he emerged from the saloon? Most Americans know that they would probably kill him, even though he had helped the cowboy. The Samaritan actually puts his life at risk for the stranger by going into a Jewish town with a half-dead Jew. And then he goes beyond. He pledges himself to the stranger. He says to the innkeeper, whatever expense has occurred, I'll cover it. He's on the line for this guy. And so the Samaritan extends an unexpected and sacrificial and even risky love to this man in great need. And that's the parable. And then Jesus looks at the lawyer and he asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. There's a brilliance here. Jesus flips the script. Remember, the lawyer had asked, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus answers his question in rabbinic fashion with a story and another question. Who proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say it. The one who had mercy is the most he can say. So the lawyer's asked, who's my neighbor? And he asked it to justify himself. And now if he's really listening, he realizes he can't justify himself before Jesus or before God because Jesus is saying, if you want to inherit eternal life, go and do likewise. Live with this different kind of love, this risky, costly, sacrificial love demonstrated in the life of a Samaritan. And so when it comes to loving our neighbors, the question is not, who must I love? The question is, how must I love? And yet, in a clever way, Jesus also answers the question of who. The lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, who's the one who showed mercy? The answer, a Samaritan. And so now the lawyer must confront that Jesus is calling him above love of neighbor, upward to love of enemy. He'd asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, start with your enemies. Start with the Samaritans next door. That's your neighbor. Now, I want to say there's so many layers to this encounter and in parable, aren't there? There's so many things we want to explore. And it can be really easy to miss the point. Uh, we want to approach this parable as if it's an ethical instruction to inspire us to go and live better lives. Anybody feeling right now like, hey, I should go and try to be a better good Samaritan? Anyone? Well, one person, so maybe I should skip this whole next point. In our culture, you know, we, we use this phrase, good Samaritans, to describe people who give their lives to, to mercy and, and justice, and, and we call them good Samaritans, and then we think, well, yeah, that's what this story is. Go and be the good Samaritan. Jesus says so much. Go and do likewise. But that's an implication of the story, not the point. Jesus clearly wants to disorient the lawyer. Jesus knew the lawyer in his heart of hearts, wanted to justify himself. 
The lawyer already thinks he's doing everything required to inherit eternal life. He believes he's already loving God. He's loving his neighbor, and the parable takes him out at the knees. He can't justify himself. He can't rise up to this kind of love, which brings him back to his first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because suddenly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself doesn't sound so easy. And even if this parable was just an ethical instruction, a model to to live to, can we actually rise up to it? And if we can, how often do we have to live to this standard? What would be enough to inherit eternal life? Uh, Sometimes when I'm stuck on a sermon, which is pretty much every week, uh, or to just avoid writing, which is often, I'll, I'll go for a walk. Because the ancients would go for a walk to think, and I like to think of myself as an ancient, and so loosen up the brain, go for a walk, maybe this sermon will sort itself out. But if you live downtown Vancouver, you know typically you're just going to walk on the streets, not down the back alleys. You stick to the sidewalks. And so a few years ago, I actually preached this passage, and I was stuck, and I decided that I'd go walk and let my subconscious do the work of the sermon. And I was walking down Davie, and I was between Seymour and Granville, and I was crossing an alleyway, and I noticed in the corner of my eye someone lying beside a dumpster. And it didn't look good. They looked half naked, and from my vantage point, I couldn't tell if they were okay at all. Uh, But it didn't look like they were. But it was also an alleyway and looked really shady. And so I did what a priest would do. I kept walking. But as I did, another man walked in the opposite direction by me and stopped. And so I stopped to observe because I thought, maybe there's a sermon illustration here. (laughs) And he stood there clearly pondering the same situation, looked both ways, and then walked down and helped the person. So remember, I'm in the middle of writing a sermon about the Good Samaritan. I'm literally a priest who passed someone by in need, and I kept walking. I can be the person who crosses to the other side. I can be the person who distances himself from the moral responsibility. I can be the person to fail to love someone in great need, let alone to love my enemies. And can I suggest this is actually true of all of us? Because sin is not just breaking laws. Sin is a failure to love. That is fundamentally what sin is, a failure to love. And like the lawyer, we prefer to love God and to love our neighbors, but on our terms. Because then we can actually justify ourselves. We can actually attain that somehow. If we focus on who we're called to love instead of how we're called to love, then we can draw the circle in a way that we can actually rise up to and stay in. And we prefer it because it's safer and it's easier and it's more comfortable and it's convenient, but it's antithetical to the love that inherits eternal life. And sometimes then we dedicate our lives to trying to live like the good Samaritan, but we're actually still trying to justify ourselves by our acts of mercy and kindness. Because we're not actually loving like the good Samaritan. We're saying, look, I'm good. God or not, religion or not, I'm doing what is right, but you're then still trying to justify your existence. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches about a different kind of love. Here's what he says. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? So if this is the kind of love that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about love God, Love your neighbor. Of course, then we need to ask again, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And this is why the Samaritan in the parable shouldn't point to ourselves, at least not initially. He shouldn't be initially lifted up as an an ethical example to aspire to. Rather, many of the church fathers, like St. Augustine, for example, says that the Samaritan points us to Jesus. And remember, at this point of Luke's gospel, we've been told Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. Everything from here until then is him on that direction. He is heading up to Jerusalem. He is not like the priest and the Levite heading away from Jerusalem, but Jesus is going to Jerusalem for what? His departure, his new exodus, his death and resurrection to save lives. And so Jesus walks to Jerusalem as the true good Samaritan And on the way, he's doing it because we are the beaten, naked, half-dead people. We are the people in need of his saving love and mercy. And so when Jesus comes to us, he comes to us and we're bruised and we're beaten by sin and we're on the verge of death and he binds up our wounds and it costs him something. And he gives of his resources to us. He gives his breath and his life and his blood and his spirit. He fulfills a law that we could not fulfill. He loves God perfectly. He loves his neighbor perfectly. And he even dies for us while we were sinners, says the Apostle Paul. And even more, he pledges himself to us. He promises to fill us with his spirit so we can live and embody his love. And that is how we're justified. Not by anything we do for ourselves, but by everything that Jesus has done for us. We're justified by his credibility before God and not our own. And so this is what we must do to inherit eternal life. Believe in Jesus, the good Samaritan, the son of God, the Messiah, who's paving this new exodus to liberate us from everything that enslaves us from the life and love of God. So friends, you don't have to live like the good Samaritan to inherit eternal life. You can live like the good Samaritan because you've inherited eternal life. And like many encounters with Jesus in the scriptures, this passage ends open. What will the lawyer do? We don't know. What will we do? Will we assume we have loving God down? Will we keep living as if there's something we must do to inherit eternal life? Will we limit who we must love as our neighbor? Or will we see the credibility of Jesus? Will we embrace the wonder and awe that his great love for us stirs? 
Will we turn to Jesus to save us and justify us before God? And will we receive his spirit to empower us as we love and we become his representatives, the good Samaritan who came and cared for us? Let's pray.